Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to The Laverne Cox Show, a production of Shondaland Audio, in partnership with iHeartRadio. We know the painful history of Black men in law enforcement and Black men being falsely accused, mostly by white women. Mostly, right? Mm-hmm. That is the truth. That we, that we, nobody's trying to ignore that or erase it. What actually gets erased is that we focus on that conversation and we don't focus on the sexual violence is weaponized against Black women, too. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Laverne Cox Show. I'm Laverne Cox. It's been more than three years since hashtag MeToo went viral and the country experienced a reckoning around sexual harassment and violence we had never seen before. It was my hope that many necessary conversations would finally happen around consent and what envisioning a world without sexual violence might look like and the systemic change that could make that vision a reality. Those conversations certainly have been happening, but I feel like they've often been drowned out by the backlash, by narratives that have sought to make the Me Too movement about something it's not. I'm interested in shifting the conversation back to the original intent of the Me Too movement envisioned by its founder, Tarana Burke. Tarana Burke has been an activist and advocate for survivors of sexual violence for almost 30 years. Her work also encompasses racial justice, anti-violence, and gender equity. She's the founder of the Me Too movement, which she originated in 2006 but it went viral in 2017, which to date has galvanized millions of survivors and allies around the world. She is the founder of Just Be Inc. and co-editor of the new book with Brene Brown, You Are Your Best Thing. Please enjoy my conversation with Tarana J. Burke. Hello, Tarana, and welcome to the podcast. How are you feeling today? Um, today. I'm so glad you said today. (laughs) Today I'm okay. Yeah. 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 Today I'm okay. Have things not been okay? Oh God, it's been such an up and down just time period. So yeah, I've been like, just had a whole bunch of different things happening. So, Mm. but I'm okay now. So how beautiful it is that today in this moment, you are okay. I love that. Because all we have is this moment. Absolutely. Can I tell you, when I was preparing for this, I discovered that you went to Alabama State University. My mother went to Alabama State University. How did you end up at Alabama State University? Because you were born in the Bronx. 
Yeah, I was a part of a youth leadership program called 21st Century Youth Leadership Movement that was founded by civil rights and you know veterans of the movement, and they were based in Selma. And I was in that program through most of high school. And when I graduated high school, I got into the schools I wanted to get into. I wanted to go to Clark, Atlanta University, and I didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. And so the woman who founded the organization, she was like, let me help you get into another school. And she got me into Alabama State. Wow. And I, I, I had never even thought about it, but I'm glad I went. I'm so glad I had. I had both an HBCU and a PWI experience. I love it. I love it. I love it. So when I was preparing for this, there were so many moments watching interviews, listening to podcasts, watching speeches where I would just become overcome with emotion to start crying. <laughs> and oh. there's just been a lot of that in, in, in a good way, in a good way. But just in thinking about the, the Me Too movement, you, we all know that you're the founder of the Me Too movement. And the original mission of Me Too was empowerment through empathy. Mm. And I was thinking about today and, and having this conversation with you, I literally lit a candle. This is the first time I've lit a candle <laughs> for a podcast because it, absorbing your work and the impact that you've had as I prepare for this, I wanted to try to create a sacred space mm. for this conversation. I think there is a sacredness in Me Too because there's a sacredness in empathy. Mm-hmm. There's a sacredness in the space that you have created for so many survivors. And, and, and the real reason I wanted to have this conversation with you, there's so many things I'm going to talk to you about, but I think that we've gotten derailed. Your original intent has gotten lost yeah. <laughs> in how people want to frame it for their own sort of political ends mm-hmm. and just people being um, confused about what it's about. And then it's so difficult to hold the space for the trauma, yeah, right? The trauma that is at the heart of sexual assault and being a survivor of that. So I guess I want to start with you. Where are you today with the founding of the Me Too movement? Yeah. Well, after the um, Kavanaugh hearings in 2018, they came right at about a year after Me Too went viral. So I'd spent that year, I had this tumultuous year that was crazy good, but also crazy strange, right? And I, I felt very much like so much good stuff had happened. And yes, people knew who I was, but they didn't really know my work because I had been kind of pulled in all these different directions to represent this or that for other people. And I had to take a step back for a moment and be like, you know, I have a very clear vision about what my offering was in the work to end sexual violence. And that's why I started the organization, which I actually never thought I would. I didn't want to start another nonprofit. I'm like, does the world need another nonprofit? But I thought it was really important to create a container for the for the work to happen in. And so I am so glad I did that. And I'm really, really proud of how we have been reclaiming for the last two or three years, right? It's just been constant work, but we have great things happening. Survivor Summer, Me Too Voter, and all this other stuff. We're still working up against this mainstream narrative of what Me Too is. And so the first thing that people should think of when they hear the words Me Too is about the people who actually said it, right? The people who are using that phrase to identify as a part of this larger group. We should not automatically think about a headline, about Hollywood, about perpetrators. We should think about the human beings whose lives have been adversely affected by this, these traumatic experiences. And that, that's our goal, to shift the narrative so that Me Too is synonymous with survivors. 
in the empathy that is inherent in Me Too, right? Absolutely. I, what's so exciting for me about Me Too is just as a phrase, it's like, I'm not alone. You're not alone. We can be in community healing. And that healing space, that empathic space is what we need in the world right now. And exactly. And the fact that we can't, that that's been co-opted and corrupted speaks, I think, to our inability to sit in the uncomfortability and the vulnerability of what is required to really be empathetic. That's right. The, the original intent is still intact and the work we're doing with survivors on the ground in coalition with other organizations is very much true to that. But as long as the mainstream narrative is like, who's next? And, you know, who got me too? And that kind of thing. Then we'll still have this, the same issues that we have around backlash and around people understand, misunderstanding. And that's harder, right? Yeah. That's much harder. That's like breaking into Hollywood. That's like getting in writer's rooms and getting mainstream media to to adjust the way they talk and think about us as survivors. Um, but also us mm -hmm. meaning Black women and mm -hmm. us meaning like all kind of us's that they don't think about when they talk about this work. What is so beautiful about the founding of Me Too is that it started with centering the lived experiences of Black and Brown girls in Alabama. Um, some of the folks who are most marginalized with, with sexual assault, but in all aspects of society. And so much of the narratives always wants to sort of focus on the, the perpetrators and how mm -hmm. their lives are being sort of ruined or the due process questions. And what I got excited about when Me Too went viral was that I was like, oh, we can, maybe it's, we can finally have a conversation about what consent looks like. Because I think a lot of men specifically and potential perpetrators are real confused. I remember years ago, I had read an article on the Good Men Project. Yeah. And a guy had written about basically how he had assaulted this woman and realized after the fact and like fled the city. But he talked about all the sort of conflicting messages that he had gotten from the media. Yeah. All of around no meaning yes. And like mm -hmm. us needing to have a conversation around that. I was like, oh my God, people don't always understand that they have not consented. I, I recently had the opportunity to confront a man who had basically sexually assaulted me too wow. about 13 years ago. And he... It was really difficult conversations, really painful. And he didn't realize in that moment that he had sexually assaulted me. And the night had stayed with him. We hadn't talked about this. And we kind of stayed friends afterwards, which is interesting and deep and whatever. But happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, peripheral friends. But we never dated after that. And what was interesting for me is that that night stayed with me you know, till this day. And it stayed with him as well. Because up until that point, and this is about 2009 or so, He'd been dating trans women since the 90s and non-trans women as well. And he had never been turned down before. He had never had someone stop a sexual encounter and be like, wait, wait, hold on. Wow. Whoa. You know, that it never happened to him. And I, and I don't want to make this about perpetrators, but it's like if we really are serious about ending rape culture, ending sexual assault, we have to have conversations about what consent looks like. And we have to be able to create space. And we have to have them early. And we have to have them early. This is a good time to take a little break. We'll be right back, though. 
Summon your anticipation for an all new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing at all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Okay, that's taken care of. Let's get back to our chat. I love that you always talk about ending sexual assault, right? And ending a culture of of sexual assault. What is your vision for this? So I think, you know, I always use this comparison. Um, When I talk about cigarettes and how, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we smoked cigarettes everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they smoke cigarettes on planes and in schools and in, you know, in bars, whatever. And then we had this onslaught of interventions. We had sort of research and medical interventions that said secondhand smoke will kill you. And people said, oh, well, you can't smoke in a car and you can't smoke in a house with your children and your loved ones, right? Because this research shows that. We had grassroots campaigns that came out telling the truth about big tobacco and, and exposing them. We had media interventions where we stopped seeing people smoking cigarettes in TV shows and movies and things like that. Mm -hmm. We had legal interventions where big tobacco was uh, sued by certain, you know, different entities, what happened. I I think of that as, you know, loosely a model for what has to happen for us to be working towards ending sexual violence. Now, of course, people still smoke, right? That's Mm -hmm. not, it hasn't ended smoking, but that also wasn't the goal. It was to make sure people are knowledgeable about it. If we don't have multiple interventions, multiple visions, right, for a plan that is working towards interrupting and eventually ending sexual violence, we won't get there. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like we need the same level. We need research about how sexual violence impacts the economy, how it impacts the workforce, how it impacts communities and, and cultures. And we need that information disaggregated by race, by age, by gender, by all of these different stuff. So we really understand the scope of the problem. It's huge. It's a huge problem. That's research. We certainly need changes in these laws and policies that are just woefully inadequate, right? And also things like even VAWA, which which has been around for a long time, the Violence Against Women Act, has all kinds of flaws in it. If there's there's a push in this country towards transformative justice, or restorative justice, or different, right? Something different than a carceral solution. If if that's really the direction we're heading in, then we need to start imagining and implementing what that looks like now, which means that we can create systems of transformative justice in our communities, in our institutions that can be replicated. But essentially, the vision is that people have to get active on all fronts. We need narrative intervention. It's not really about policing sexuality or, or, or censoring, but we don't need egregious sexual violence on television, right? And if you are using it to make a point or a statement about sexual violence, I think there's some space for it. But we do need to be more 
vigilant and conscious about the ways we show rape culture and sexual violence portrayed in our mainstream media. Mm -hmm. So the vision I have is to work in tandem with other people in the field to create those interventions. And part of what we're doing, you know, we have Act 2, this this new platform that we introduced last year. That's really to activate everyday people, right? Mm -hmm. So it's such a huge problem that it's no way that it can be tackled without shifting the consciousness of everyday people to think, I need to do something about this, mm-hmm. right? I need to be involved. We Things like comprehensive sex education, talking to your point about consent. What would the world look like if you take a group of kindergarten students right now and you give them comprehensive sex education that covers the spectrum, right? Mm. Every year and layer it on and, 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 and advance it every year so it's, you know, relevant to their age. And not just introduce consent in 10th grade or in 12th grade and then send these kids off to college after watching a video on the computer that says no means no and da 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 da. Yeah. It's just, it's just honestly, it's just not enough. It is, it's outsized and it's not enough happening to match the magnitude of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I feel like I have to keep ringing the alarm and the work that we do has to keep building coalition across the field because I do think definitely with with giving all kinds of praise and flowers to the work that's happened um, on the ground around sexual violence. I do think there's a way that some of the big national organizations got really complacent, you know? Mm. Think about when Me Too first went viral. There was no immediate response. Mm. There's no rapid response from philanthropy. There was no rapid response from from big mainstream organizations. No, so many people were used to not talking about it and, and not having like a national sustained dialogue. Yeah, um, that's really important. But I, but I, but mm-hmm. there's just so, I mean, there's so many things I think about and want to talk about, but <laughs> I, but when I do the deep dive into your work, love and empathy are at the center. Mm-hmm. And what feels so beautiful is how there's space created through me too. There's space created through empathy because I hear all the solutions you talk about and I'm just like, we can't even get $15 minimum wage. They just read an article about like the the Secretary of Education, I think in New York City, just stepped down and he was trying to desegregate schools in New York and it couldn't get done. It's crazy. There's so much bureaucracy. There's so much corruption in the system that keeps things from getting done. And I think about how much we are not moving in that space of love and empathy. No. That people in power are so committed to maintaining that power that they use the divide and conquer. Because I was thinking another thing that's come up a lot recently that you've talked about publicly is how Me Too is being framed a lot in the Black community as like an attack on Black men, right? Oh, gosh, yes. I think immediately, this is exactly how divide and conquer works, right? Let's pit the interest of Black men against those of survivors of sexual assault and create this narrative where like Black men are being persecuted, which then again erases the voices of survivors, erases like the voices and experiences of of Black women and girls. We can't hold two truths at the same time. And there are multiple truths, actually, when it comes to sexual violence in the Black community. We announced our campaign called We As Ourselves. It's a collaboration with Time's Up and the National Women's Law Center. And it really is a campaign that's been a year in the making about centering Black survivors. And it came on the heels of the backlash of the Russell Simmons documentary, the R. Kelly documentary, um, Gail King backlash after Kobe Bryant died. Like all of these things compounded. It was like, why are Black women always trashed in the media when they come forward. You know, it's just, 
Like we need to say something to be really specific. So we put it up. It is no names involved. We don't name any perpetrators. We don't even name any survivors. We literally just say Black survivors, not Black women. You know, it's it's like all Black survivors. And the amount of trolling that has hit my page and Me Too's page, it's always, what about? What about? What about? Right? And it's all these Black men saying, oh, you hate Black men. We know the white women in Hollywood have stolen your movement and they use you as a puppet. And I'm just like, are you all insane? Like, <laughs> These are the mm. same people who would not stand up for those Black women survivors when they came forward. So it's, it's so frustrating for me because this should be a moment for the Black community to come together and say, yeah. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how you identify. We will not accept this kind of violence in our community mm-hmm. against anybody. Yeah. But instead... To your point, it has become a moment of divide and conquer. It is absolutely true, and I've said this 300,000 times, that sexual violence has been weaponized against Black men. Mm -hmm. We have a whole history of it that you can't deny, and it's a painful history. We will never forget Emmett Till. And you can can bring it from Emmett Till all the way up to Brian Banks, right? And I was reading the story of the man in Boston who claimed that his wife had been murdered by a Black man and he actually was the murderer. And they had locked down Boston searching for this Black man. We know the painful history mm-hmm. of Black men in law enforcement and Black men being falsely accused, mostly by white women. Mostly. Right? Mm-hmm. That is a truth. That, we, that we, Nobody's trying to ignore that or erase it. What actually gets erased is that we focus on that conversation and we don't focus on the sexual violence was weaponized against Black women, too. Amen. We were enslaved and and sexual violence was used as a weapon of torture for us during enslavement, right? Absolutely. And and Black women have had to deal with sexual violence at the hands of white men, and we've had to deal with sexual violence at the hands of our own men. There's no way that we would have the second highest rate of of sexual violence experiences in this country behind Indigenous women Mm -hmm. if that weren't true. It doesn't say anything particular about Black men But it creates this complicated conversation because, oh, no, we're not rapists. No, all Black men are not rapists, obviously. right? No, you're not. Mm -hmm. But do Black women get raped? Absolutely. Does it happen at the hands of white men? Absolutely. Does it also happen at the hands of Black men? Absolutely. So now that all this truth is out on the table, with love and empathy and compassion, we should be able to close the curtain and say, y'all, we got to have a conversation about this. I think part of what what the difficulty is for our community, when I say our community, I say Black folks, is that when somebody Black does something, then it becomes a reflection of all Black people because of how white supremacy works. The whole community, exactly. And when a white man does something, it does not become a reflection of all white men. No. So I think that we have to... Again, we have to we have different kind of conversations in the media and it needs to be more nuanced. But I also think about my friend Alok, who I had on the podcast. We had a conversation a year ago and Alok said in that conversation, some people are not looking for justice. I think they're looking for privilege. Oh, yes, indeed. And I feel <laughs> like what, right? That's a word. <laughs> what mm-hmm. I feel is having grown up in, in the Black church in Alabama is that there was such a desire, I think, for some Black folks to have privilege, but in in ways that replicate patriarchy. Absolutely. There's so many, you know, incredible Black women who've been challenging patriarchy since the beginning, right? And who've been intersectional and amazing. And there are some Black women who 
are, are very interested and invested in patriarchy in a way mm-hmm. that is trying Elevates their life. Exactly. That elevates their particular life and the life of their particular crowd. I mean, we know that happens in our community without question. We were socialized in patriarchy and white supremacy. It's the only model we have for what power looks like, right? And we are a community that's constantly having our power taken away from us or attempts at power taken away from us. Power is equated to money and wealth and, and you know, education and all these different ways that we, we have less than in the community. So absolutely, uh, that is a word. They're not looking for justice. They're looking for privilege. But I mean... This is the thing when I'm hearing this, like, what about white men? I'm like, what about white men? This is something that's really interesting to me. The reality of the Me Too movement, hashtag Me Too, is that it took a swath of white men down, right? The names that you hear associated, is our folks weren't paying attention because it wasn't us. So who cares about a Harvey Weinstein or a Charlie Rose and, you know, whatever, But there's a list that the New York Times put out once, and it's probably should be updated by now, but maybe 2018 or 2019 of like 400 men who have been affected by Me Too. I went through that list painstakingly. (laughs) I could only find 19 people of color. Of those people of color, like six of them were Black men. Mm. So this, as as a thing in the world, this is not something that has adversely affected our community. Mm. Nobody is painting Black men as the face of Me Too. You got R. Kelly, you got Russell Simmons, you got Bill Cosby. Those are the three names of Black men that are most associated with sexual violence and definitely not representative of the average Black man. So this, this this kind of notion that you want to take down Black men, it's just, it's nonsense. And it's from a place of a lot of things. I think a paranoia, I think triggering around the history of sexual violence. But I also think to your friend's point, Beyond the not wanting justice and wanting privilege, it is a part of an ongoing history that also includes not protecting Black women, not standing up for Black women, right? And when Black women stand up for themselves, finding ways to knock us down. Yeah, That's just happening. That's just true. And and the Black women who've been standing up for Black men. (laughs) How about that? Yes, absolutely. And so many Black women who don't come forward because they don't want to have another Black man in the, in the criminal justice yes, system. Indeed. And so the, in the space of the healing that we might need is subjugated to someone else. And so, gosh, and there's so much I want to talk to you about. <laughs> now feels like a great time for a short break. We'll be right back, though. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Okay, we're back. 
you are the editor of a forthcoming book with Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us the title of that book? That book, as you know, because you're one of our uh, contributors, is called You mm-hmm. Are Your Best Thing. And it's based on a quote from Toni Morrison's book, Beloved. And I'm just, I'm so excited about it. I am so grateful that you contributed to it. I, I really am because, you know, Brene and I became fast friends when we met some years ago and and have had this, you know, ongoing conversation and relationship because of the ways that our work overlaps. And I was so frustrated, quite frankly, last summer after George Floyd was murdered because I just kept hearing all of these conversations about how white people can be better, how about anti-racism, about all of these things that are necessary, but also not enough conversation about the trauma that Black people were holding by watching yet another member of our community be murdered in the street by people who are charged with protecting our lives, supposedly, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To know that another Breonna Taylor person would be murdered with impunity. Like, it just, the number, I mean, there's more than the ones that were public, but even the big public ones where you have the videos that are played online, that is traumatic. When you spoke about this last year, it hit me. This is one of the moments I, when I was preparing for this, where I just started, I broke down in tears. because I was just like, these are the words that I need. Because I knew that I was traumatized. I know, I knew that there's mm-hmm. collective trauma around this. But I just, after George Floyd and Tony McDade happened a few days after George Floyd, mm-hmm. that's not on video, but then a trans woman was beaten, brutally beaten, Ayana yeah. Dior. And I just hit a point where I just, I, <laughs> It's too much. I can't. I can't anymore. I can't read details. This is so traumatizing. And mm-hmm. I love that this book with Brene is sort of a response to that. Exactly. Right? And ultimately a response to that. In the intro, you say our humanity, our individual and collective vulnerability needs and deserves some breathing room. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the intention of the book? Absolutely. The, the intention was to, to create a space for Black people to talk about how this impacts us, right? Shame is a tool of oppression. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, and the tool of white supremacy. I love Brene's work, obviously, and it had helped me so much. And I also found myself contorting to fit into it in some ways because it didn't fully reflect my experience as a Black woman in this country. And so it felt like I, I wanted a space for us to talk about how shame impacts our lives and how we're resilient to that shame, right? In various ways. And also, I'm a Black woman. We need to hear the voices of Black trans folks, about Black queer folks, about from Black men, from Black young people, Black elders. Our lives deserve space to tell our stories and to just tell our stories, not in relation to anything else and not in service of making white people better, right? But I do think. And I said this in the introduction, this is a precursor to your anti-racist work because you have to be able to engage with Black humanity in order to not be racist. I really believe that. If you're just, I, I read the anti-racist book and I do the anti-racist da-da-da-da-da, but you really don't engage with Black humanity. You don't try to understand it or think about it or, or have a connection to how these things actually impact our lives, then your work will be not as useful, not to you or to anybody else. So this is an offering. You know, Brene and I label this and call and talk about this as an offering, first and foremost to the Black community, you know, a place to see ourselves and to see some of our stories reflected, right? But also an offering to the world to continue to tell these stories and to normalize telling these stories. Because there's also a piece that's like, 
Black people don't talk about this either. You know, there's also a little piece of that. My piece is about health and illness and how, you know, so many Black women just hold it and don't talk about it and just soldier through. So there's also an internal conversation for us to have about some of this stuff too. So, so beautiful, so necessary. Um, In the intro, you say, we often carry our trauma in similar ways, but the roads that lead us to the trauma are also different. We must pay attention to that road. The road is our humanity. The road is the piece that we're talking about. A lot of times we're happy and relieved to find similarities. Oh, you too. You too. Me too. No pun intended. (laughs) These experiences create community and it's wonderful, but it is still critical to understand the different paths that led you to the trauma. Brene then replies, that makes so much sense. We have to know the road if we're going to walk back down it and dismantle the systems that led us to trauma. Mm-hmm. So knowing the road, knowing the road, and, and Brene would talk about owning the story too in her work yes. over and over again, that she's applied to us owning our history. And I, just, I, love, I love that you connect so much to Brene's work. I do as well. And I think in that intro, you also talked about vulnerability, mm-hmm. that the vulnerability piece was really hard for you. And I was just like, oh, and, and when you are a trauma survivor, vulnerability is it's really difficult. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 triggering. It's like I'm gonna die. If the sensation yeah. in our bodies is like I'm gonna die, I'm yeah. not gonna survive this if I'm vulnerable. When you've experienced trauma, and so many black people have experienced trauma. And vulnerability means something different to us. Yeah. Right? To black people, I think. I think there's a there's a different connotation. It's not just, you know, I don't want to trivialize anybody's experience with with vulnerability, but for us, it can sometimes mean death. Right. It can mean a, a kind of danger that other people don't experience outside of our community. So it is it is you tell me to be vulnerable to who for what? No, <laughs> no. Right. You have to give me more explanation than that. Yeah. But vulnerability is also the site of all the things that are dear and wonderful, and incredible in our lives. That's right. So we have to be able to create the safe spaces. And we still need it. Yeah, we still need it. We have to be create the safe spaces so we can be vulnerable. Exactly. I, I also think that in this moment that we have so much to learn from survivors and survival and the ideas of empowerment through empathy and healing. We have been traumatized as a country, right? We have been traumatized as a world, really, but this country has been through a grossly traumatic experience. One of the things I've been talking about lately is that I don't want to do any liberation work that doesn't have a politic of grace included. Mm. We need more love. We need more space for each other because particularly those who are working towards the same things, who have a liberation ideology and who are thinking towards being more free in this world and having a more just world, we definitely need to have more grace for each other. It's not a competition. Mm. We need to be working more in tandem, but certainly without empathy and love and some vulnerability, we won't get there. Amen. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you for that. So I'd like to end the podcast with a question. And the question is, what else is true? And it's about really what helps you get through. And it's resetting our nervous system. So what are the things or the one thing or the thought or the sensation that helps you get through a resource for you in your life today? What else is true for you, Toronto Burke? What else is true? What else is true is that I am gentle, right? I am, I am not rough around the edges all the time. I'm not, you know, badass all the time. I am my own soft place to land sometimes. And then, and I don't think I acknowledge that enough. 
Mm. I don't know if that's the, what you mean when you're asking that question, but that's what came to my mind first as I'm my own resource sometimes. Is that what helps you get through sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, then absolutely. Sometimes being my own resource, it is It is certainly, it's, it's what's been on my mind lately. I just feel like, you know, as Black women, we always are, are kind of made to feel like you have to be hard as bricks and, you know, sharp edges. And, and I'm like, nah, that's not really who I am all the time. Yeah. I'm not, and I don't want to be. And so I try to be my own create my own gentleness for myself because people won't give it to you. Amen. I love that so much. So can you just tell people where to find you? Tell them um, your website. Where can absolutely get to know more about Tarana? <laughs> well, I think I'm just Tarana Burke on everything or maybe Tarana Janine on Instagram. And mm-hmm. of course, Me Too Movement, please go to ours. It's Me Too MVMT. Dot org. Our website has a ton of resources for survivors. Mm-hmm. And if you're not a survivor and you want to support survivors or support the movement, you should go there to visit our Act 2 platform. Uh, we as ourselves, the, the campaign has launched, so go check that out. The book, You Are Your Best Thing. And this fall, my memoir will drop. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully I'll be back to talk about it. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Thank you. Thank you for the work. Thank you for being a survivor, thank you for creating the space for empowerment through empathy. I freaking love that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Laverne. I freaking love you. You are so, 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 so special. Thank you. I love Tarana Burke so much. What hits me in my gut after listening to our conversation is the difficulty in wrapping words around the vulnerability required to heal, especially for those of us who are survivors of sexual assault. If you're a trauma survivor, vulnerability can feel like death. And if you're a Black, a woman, trans, a person with a disability, or at the intersection of a few or all of these experiences and more, trauma could be a huge component of your story. But allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, I feel, is the only way we can truly heal. Brene Brown defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. I can testify that allowing myself to be vulnerable, allowing myself to confront the uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure tied to my various traumas has often felt like I was going to die that I couldn't survive the pain, the shame just below the surface. But confronting those difficult things did not kill me. I'm still here and more resilient from the process. Tarana Burke's work and the phrase, Me Too, is a reminder. We are not alone. Thank you for listening to The Laverne Cox Show. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share with everyone you know. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Laverne Cox and on Facebook at Laverne Cox For Real. Join me next week when I talk to Kevin Allred, an award-winning author, speaker, and educator about our mutual love and respect for the queen, the diva herself, Queen Bee, Sasha Fierce, the one and only... Beyonce, and how her music interrogates American race, gender, and sexual politics. Until next time, stay in the love.
The Laverne Cox Show is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.